Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. Welcome. Did you notice the fancy bulletin cover? Sorry if you're at home watching. You all here are the well. People at home are the unwell. But there's lovely bulletin cover. Mrs. Samland drew this for us this week, and she's going to do one every week or every service between now and Christmas on the themes of the candles of Advent. There's a lot of interesting imagery going on in this one. Kids, I want you to look at it today and figure out, if you, see if you can identify all of the different images that are going on and, and see if you can see how they relate to Jesus Christ. Each one of these points to a prophecy in Scripture about the Lord Jesus Christ. See if you can identify what they are and how they speak of Jesus. Bulletin covers are one of the ways we're going to make Advent uh, special this year. Another way is that we're going to direct our sermons through this season to the children. I'm glad there are some children here. Seems like this sickness has hit the, the, the child population of our church. But I'm glad you made it. Kids, I'm, this is for you today especially. And I want you to listen carefully. Earlier this morning in our service, we lit the first of five candles of Advent. This is the, price, the prophet's candle. And today we're going to talk about prophets. But first I want to talk to you about candles. Why on earth do we light candles in our service every Christmas season? Is there anything specially holy about candles? No, there's not. Does God command us to light candles as a way of worshiping him in his word? No. Do we need these candles to worship God properly? No, we don't need them at all. So why on earth do we light them? Well, only for this reason, really. Because it's a handy way and a nice Christmassy way to stop each year and remember some of the big things that God has done in sending his son Jesus into this world. That's what Advent and Christmas is all about. It's, the, it's about the infinite spirit God sending his eternally begotten infinite spirit son whom he loves into this world as a man. That's a hard to comprehend thing. But he came, that infinite spirit, son of God, came as a man with flesh and bones like you and I have, born of a woman like you and I were, living here among us. He grew up and he lived his life, as long as he lived it, here among us. He spoke God's word to us face to face, God himself. And he, in the end, he offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. That's why he came. And that's what we remember and celebrate here each Advent season, each Christmas. Jesus coming into this world in the flesh. Now, this is not just a nice story. Okay, kids? It is a nice story, but it's not just a nice story. This is something that happened, really happened. It happened about 2,000 years ago, which may seem like a long time ago. But did you know 
that many, many more years were spent waiting for him to come than we've spent now looking back on his having come? Many more years, thousands of years. Thousands of years is a long time to wait for something. But that's how God dealt with his people in the Old Testament. He wanted them to hope and to wait. Day by day, year after year, he wanted them to have a hope of a coming Savior in their hearts. He wanted them to keep that hope alive. And he wanted them to carry that with them every day of their life, even to the end of their days, into the grave. And if they did that, well, that was the spiritual work of their life. And if they did that, if they kept that hope alive in their hearts, and they took it to their grave... God was pleased with them. That was enough for God. That was enough for them to be counted a righteous man or woman or child before God. And if they didn't keep that hope in their hearts, didn't keep it alive, God was not pleased with them. Well, but how did they have that hope? How did they know to hope for a Savior? And who was there to help them keep it alive through all of those years of waiting? That's the work of God's prophets. That's what God's prophets were all about. What is a prophet? Well, very simply, a prophet is someone sent from God to speak his word to others. That's what a prophet is. He, somebody sent by God to declare and speak his word to others. There's been lots of prophets throughout history. Some of them, some of them have been true prophets. That is, men, sometimes women, who are truly sent, authorized by God, who receive his message and declare it faithfully and accurately to people, even against opposition sometimes. Those are true prophets of God. And others have been false prophets. Those are men and women who send themselves, and they declare their own ideas about things and about God. And they're not God's prophets, they're false prophets. We're going to talk today mostly about God's true prophets, who they were, what they did, what they were about, and what that means for us. In order to do that, I want us to go all the way back to the very beginning of things, to the earliest chapters of the Bible, and I want to ask you a question. Are you listening? It's a little bit of a trick question. Who was the first prophet in the Bible? Who was the first prophet in the Bible? You have somebody in mind? Well, it's kind of a trick question because there's a sense in which God was the very first prophet in Scripture. God himself was. That is, God brought his word to man. Do you remember in the Garden of Eden, at the creation of the world, there was nothing standing between God and man. There was no sin that had come into the equation that had messed everything up. God and man had fellowship and communion with each other. God, the infinite spirit, somehow, we don't understand how, but somehow he was known to come and walk in the garden in the cool of the day, and he spoke his word to man, as it were, face to face. Do you remember what he said to Adam, the first, the first man, Adam? In Genesis 2, 16 to 17, it says, God says, Adam, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. 
That's God being his own prophet, speaking his word to man himself concerning life in his garden. I'm sure you remember what happened next. Anybody remember what happened next? Eve and Adam, did they listen to God's word? Did they obey God's word? No, they didn't. They disobeyed God. And just as God warned, they brought upon themselves the curse of sin and death. How did that come about? Well, just as God was the first prophet, Satan was the first false prophet. Satan was the first false prophet. Satan came to Eve in the form of a serpent, speaking untrue things about God. He sent himself and he said his own thoughts and words to Eve. Things like, Eve, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in this garden? Which right there was a lie. God hadn't said anything of the sort. And Eve stands in to defend God, but he's already planted a thought of doubt and a suspicion about God in her mind that he's stingy and he doesn't want good things for me, that he's restrictive. Well, she defends God and says, no, no, he says, he says only from this one tree we can eat. We can eat from all the other trees, but not from this one tree. Because if we do eat from it, even if we touch it, we will die. That's why God says, oh, you won't die if you eat from that tree. Do you know what? God's just insecure. God's feeling defensive. He's a little intimidated by you. What would happen if you ate from that tree? What would happen is you would be wise like God. You would know the difference between good and evil, like God does. And this would make you like God. And God doesn't want anybody. He wants, all that. He wants that all for himself. He doesn't want that for you. Those were some of the things that Satan came and said to Eve as a false prophet. And Eve believed him. She believed him. And so she did what God said not to do. She ate the fruit. She gave the fruit to Adam. And he did, he did what God said not to do. And they brought upon themselves the curse of sin and death, just as God had said would happen. Well, God came and he found them out. And his response was to kick them out of the garden and to curse the serpent, the woman, and the man. Here's what God said by way of curse to the serpent. We read it in our Advent reading, but I'm going to read it again. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now what is that? It's a curse, but it's also hidden in there is a really incredible promise. It's a curse for the serpent. On your belly you shall go, dust you shall eat, crushed will be your head. But it's a promise for man. God was going to put warfare between man and the serpent, between the seed of the woman, between the seed of the serpent. And from 
the seed of the woman, he was going to raise up a mighty champion who was going to crush Satan's head, overturn his kingdom, put an end to his lies, and stop his evil works. That's the promise. That's the first promise in the scriptures, the first prophecy in the scriptures of a Savior to come. Right there at the very beginning, right after sin ruins it all, God steps in with curses that are appropriate. Actually, they're merciful (laughs) and measured. But right there in the midst of the curses, right there in the midst of Adam and Eve starting to feel in their bodies the principle of death at work, God is there with a prophecy of hope for them. And this tells us something really important about God. The curses teach us about the seriousness and the weight of our sin. But the promise that's inherent right there in the midst of the curse tells us about God's loving kindness, his desire to not leave us without a way forward and without a hope of redemption. God is very merciful and kind. Well, after this first promise was given, God continued to speak his word to men day by day, year by year, generation after generation, century after century. Sometimes he spoke his word to man by speaking himself. And there's one really memorable time when this happens that shows how scary that is. When God spoke, whenever God spoke after this, after sin entered the equation and messed everything up, anytime God spoke his word himself, it was pretty intense and pretty scary for sinners. And there's one really memorable account of this. At the mountain of Sinai, all the people of Israel are surrounded by there, and God says, consecrate yourselves, I'm going to come down and I'm going to talk to you. And he does. And you know what they say? We don't want that ever to happen again. That is frightening. We are filled with dread. Moses, our leader, you go up the mountain. You talk to God. You hear what he has to say. And then you come back and tell us what it was because we can't bear the sound of it. God showed up on the mountain. Lightning, thunder, and smoke. And his voice could be heard his mighty voice and he spoke the words of his law and the people could not bear the sound of it that's because of their sin and their sense of dread at the thought of God's credible holiness so it was pretty scary whenever God spoke his word to men himself directly sometimes God spoke his word to men through angels either sort of in person, as it were, or in dreams and visions. God would speak his word sometimes through angels. That was also pretty scary and intense because whenever men would encounter angels in the Bible, they would fall on their faces in terror and the angels would have to say, no, no, don't be afraid. I've come bearing good news for you. But still, they were frightening things. Most of the time, though, God spoke his word through other men. God would speak his word to a man and he would send that man to the rest of the people, to the group, to declare his word to the rest. That was the normal thing. 
And that's a kindness from God. That's an accommodation of God to our weakness, to our fear, to our dread of his holiness. It's a way of him making his word, his great, mighty word, approachable for us. Not quite as scary for us to hear and receive because he would send other men like us, sinners like us, men with weakness and frailty and feet of clay just like us. And he would send those men to us to teach us his word and to declare it. Those men who would do that are who we call prophets, God's prophets. Kids, can you name any of God's prophets from Scripture, from the Old Testament? You've got to yell it out loud. Isaiah? Samuel. Very good. We'll come back to Samuel. Isaiah and Samuel. Any other ones? Saul? Paul. Yeah. Who? Ezra. Good job. We had a Jeremiah in the first service, and he got his namesake right, too. Jeremiah. Nice. Jonah. I see a hand back there. Ezekiel. Micah. Others? Can you think of any prophets of God? Yeah, you have one? Jonah. Nice. Can you think of any prophets of God who started their prophetic ministry and work even while they were children? Ooh. Smarty pants. <laughs> Very good. You're way ahead of us. Yes? Yes! David was filled with a mighty spirit of God, even as a young boy, and to do mighty courageous acts and to declare mighty words. He did that as a young boy. Samuel, that was like the best example I could think of myself. Samuel, whose mother hoped and prayed for a baby, and God gave her a baby, and she promised that she would give that baby to the Lord and dedicate him to his service. So even as a young child, she brought him up to the temple. And there in the temple at night, God spoke to Samuel. And after Samuel finally figured out it was God speaking to him, he took God's message and he started declaring it. And he continued to do that throughout his life. He was a prophet of God who, just like as a young boy, probably very young, was filled with God's spirit and had God's message given to him to declare to others. Do you know there are like 400 prophecies about a Savior in Scripture? Over 400. The first one there in Genesis was just the first of many. And these prophets, they some, one part of their message, a big part of their message, was to declare words of hope about a coming Messiah. Whether they were young or old, whether they were a child or an adult, that's what prophets did. It was the job of a prophet to listen carefully to God and to communicate his word faithfully to others. Now, was this an easy job? Would you like that job? Was it, do you think it was an easy job to do? You know, it turned out to be a very hard job. It's not a job anybody should really want or envy. And you know why? Because men are proud and hard-hearted, 
and stubborn and at the, down underneath, really very wicked. That's men, men and women, children. Our hearts are proud. Our, we're hard-hearted. We don't like, we love our sin, and we don't want anybody messing with that, taking it away from us, taking it away from us or challenging us about it. So the, the job of a prophet was not easy because men are proud. Do you like it when your mom or dad points out your sin? Do you like it when your brother or your sister points out your sin? <coughs> Parents, do you like it when your spouse points it out or when your child points it out? That's, it's pretty easy to understand actually why the job of a prophet's very hard you stop and think about yourself for half a second. The job of a prophet, the first big job and responsibility, was to try to get people in a fit state and condition to realize that they needed a Savior and that they were doing things that God was not pleased with and that they needed to turn from and return to the Lord in repentance. And to do that, they had to shine a big light of God's truth on the hearts of men, on the deeds of men, and they had to say, that's sinful, that's wicked, and you can't do that. You should turn from that. Repent of that. And that wasn't very appreciated. And because of that, a prophet had a hard job, and most of them were very poorly treated. Their words were not well received. They were rejected. It's not nice to be rejected. They were made fun of. They were often driven out of town. Get out of here. Who needs you? They were called troublers of God's people. They had to run for their lives sometimes. Some of them were put in prison. Jeremiah was put down a well and left there. Some of them were even killed for what they had to say. But God kept loving his people and sending them prophets to point out their sin and to call them to repent of it and return to the Lord. And you know what? Once in a while, the people actually listened. And they humbled themselves, and they returned to the Lord. And sometimes they didn't listen, but the judgments that the prophets um, forecasted, foretold, because of their sin, would come upon them. And they would suffer because of that as a discipline from the Lord. And then they would humble their hearts. And then they would return to the Lord. And that's right there when the, the prophet's job became the best job in the world. Right there. Up to that point, not a very fun job. A lot of pain and suffering involved. Right there, when people were teachable and soft and wanting to return to the Lord and were humble of heart, that's when a prophet's job was the best job in the world. Do you know why? I feel like the kids are hiding behind their parents. They're like, I sort of see the little kids out there, but I have a time connecting with them. Do you know why? that was the best moment in the prophet's life and gave him the best job in the world is because that's when he could stop rebuking people and start saying words of comfort and hope 
and, and speaking comforting words and peaceful words to God's people who were hurting and in need. It's the best job in the world. They got to assure God's people who were humble and hurting of God's mercy and kindness for them. And this is where a lot of the promises of a Savior were proclaimed. Because when people are hurting and they're suffering because of their sin and they're humble before the Lord, they need hope. And the hope that God held out for them was the hope of a Savior to come. That champion from Genesis 3 who would come and defeat the works of darkness and deliver them from their sins. It was the humble hope of a Savior believed on in the heart and carried day by day to their life's end that made an Old Testament saint pleasing to God. It's what made him righteous before God. And that's what the prophets were there to do, to help people get humble and then to assure them about a Savior and deliverance and redemption to come, which they did day by day, year after year, century after century, right up until the day that God stopped speaking. Did you know that God stopped speaking to man for a while? The prophet Malachi, the last prophet who, who ministered in the Old Testament to God's people Israel, spoke the last words from God for 400 years. God was just silent. He was doing things he was active. He was ruling the world just like normal, but he wasn't talking. He wasn't talking to man himself directly. He wasn't sending them angelic messengers, and he wasn't sending them any prophets. Now, does anybody know what happened next after those 400 years? What I wish I could do which I wish we had time to do, was right now launch into a reading of Luke chapter 1. Because that's where the story picks up again. And it's amazing how God, seemingly out of nowhere, starts talking again. He, start, he talks to Zechariah, a priest. And he gives him a word through an angel. And the word is, you're going to have a son. You and Elizabeth, in your old age, beyond the age of possible conception, it's going to be a miracle baby. You're going to have a son, and you're going to name that son John. And John's going to be a mighty prophet who's going to speak my word. And he's going to be the first of a pair. God, was a, God broke his silence by sending two final prophets. John who was called the forerunner, John the Baptist. He's called the forerunner because this is kind of a girly image. It's from weddings. But you know like those aisle runners that the, the ushers, sometimes the little children, will carry down the aisle in preparation for the bride to come and to process forward. It's like a way of honoring her and dignifying her, 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 her beauty, her presence her person. That's like ministry of John was like that. He was the forerunner. That's what he was called. That's what the angel calls him. He's going to be a forerunner. He's going to go before the promised Savior. There was nothing girly about John, by the way, nor about Jesus. It's the best I could come up with. He got to be a forerunner, announcing like a herald 
preparing the way for the Lord. The second was Jesus Christ himself, the ultimate prophet. John prepared the way for Jesus by calling men to repent and humble themselves in readiness for the appearing of their Savior. He was a very great prophet and a very privileged man because he is the only Old Testament prophet who got to see the Savior with his own eyes. So like all of the people of Israel who lived prior to that time, they lived and they died in hope. They never got to see the Savior themselves. Here at the end is a prophet God raised up as a forerunner and herald of the Messiah who actually saw him. One day he was there in the crowd and John knew who he was looking at. And he said, behold, everybody, look, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There he is. He got to baptize Jesus with his own hands and touch him. He got to hear Jesus teach and preach. John was a very great prophet, the greatest who ever lived. That's according to Jesus Christ. In Luke 7, verse 28, Jesus says, I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. No one greater than this man, John. He's the greatest. But compared to Jesus, John didn't think he was very special at all. Do you remember what John said about Jesus? He was, teach, he was talking to people and he said, I baptize with water, but among you is one who you don't know. It is he who comes after me. I'm the forerunner to him. I'm the opening act. He's the real deal. The thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. I don't even think I'm I don't know why I'm used of God because I'm not even worthy to, to stoop down in the dust and help this man off with his shoes. So John did not think of himself as any way special compared to Jesus. Jesus is the greatest. Why is Jesus the greatest? Why would John say that? Do you remember how before sin entered the picture and messed everything up, God used to speak to Adam in the garden directly himself. Do you remember that? We, we talked about that. Do you remember that after that, once sin came into the picture, God was speaking his word to man directly and it was frightening to the people and they didn't want to hear that voice again. Do you remember that? Do you also remember that God sent prophets, other men, to speak his word to people, to make his word more approachable and relatable <laughs> to them and a little less frightening than it otherwise would be. Well, Jesus takes all of those things and he harmonizes them all in himself. He takes God and he comes down himself as a man in a real body, a body like ours, not like a glorified body that shines and we can't even bear to look at it, but just like ours, nothing special. In fact, Isaiah the prophet says he was kind of ugly. Nothing special, just a humble body, like Richard's, like Jody's. And he comes and he speaks God's word to us himself. 
That makes him the greatest prophet ever. Just right there. God himself in human form speaking to us, stooping to our weakness, sympathizing with our frame, and coming and being relatable, and teaching us. Do you remember how Jesus did this? He just taught and he taught and he taught. And, he, and sometimes he was so tired of it, he tried to get away. And then the people would anticipate, I think I know where he's going. And they would go around and beat him there. And he would show up and they'd be there waiting. And he wouldn't turn away from them. He was moved with compassion and pity. And he would teach some more. That's God in the flesh, the Son of God, our prophet. John 1, 14. This is a great verse for Christmas. And the Word, the Word of God, who is Jesus himself, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. We saw God's glory in the person of Jesus Christ, not lightning and smoke and whirlwind or fire, but a frail human body like our own. We heard God's voice in Jesus' voice, not an earthquake or a thunderclap or the blast of a trumpet that we couldn't bear to listen to, a real sympathetic human voice. That's how God came to us in Jesus. Jesus was in the Father, and the Father was in him. And he came to teach us the words of the Father and to speak to us and to bring us God's word. That makes Jesus the last and the ultimate prophet of all. You can't beat that. You can't beat that. Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 2 says this. God after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. God has spoken to us in his Son, Jesus. Kids, are you listening to Jesus He's a prophet par excellence. Nobody can beat him. Nobody greater. Listen to Jesus. He is God himself speaking to us. What does this mean for you and me? Jesus, if Jesus is the last and the greatest prophet, if he's the one all the former prophets looked forward to and talked about, and if he came, and if he did he said what he had to say, did his work, and left. Does this mean that prophecy is done? That's a pertinent question. We're going through the book of Acts. There's a lot of that kind of question bubbling up. Is prophecy done? Any more to say about Jesus than has already been said? Well, yes, it's done, and no, it's not done. We no longer need special men set apart to go off into the hills and listen to God and come back and declare his word about a Savior to come because he has come. And so a lot of the predictive 
future-oriented things about prophecy have been fulfilled. A lot of them had to do with either temporal judgments that were going to come to bear in the life of people to prepare them for the promise of a Messiah, or they had to do with the promise of a Messiah to come. And Jesus has come, and he has fulfilled them. But we do need people to tell us about a Jesus who came, about who he is and what he has accomplished and said. And so a lot of the things about biblical prophecy, which were declarative, were statements of fact, present truths and realities, they continue today. And we need them to continue today because we need to hear about Jesus. And there's a whole world that needs to hear about Jesus. The biblical, the Old Testament prophets, they only had one nation to tend to and to talk to. That was their focus, their whole world, their whole mission in, in life was to tell a certain people in one nation, not even a big nation, about a coming Messiah and a coming Savior. We have before us an international mission from Jesus, the great prophet himself, who just before he ascended into heaven said, go into the world and to preach the gospel to all creatures, to all creation, to the ends of the earth. Take it everywhere. Tell everybody about me. That's the mission he left his, with his church, and he empowered his church with the Holy Spirit so that they could, could fulfill it. There's a wonderful verse in Revelation about prophecy. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible about prophecy. Because prophecy can be this thing that we get hung up on. What is it? Who's doing it? When is it from the Lord and when is it not from the Lord? Has it, is it still continuing today or is it not continuing today? There's a lot of confusion about prophecy. This, for me, really simplifies it. What is prophecy according to the book of Revelation? It says in Revelation 19.10, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That really simplifies things for us, doesn't it? Is there anything important to say about Jesus? Are there any people out there that need to hear the message of Jesus? Then who's going to be a prophet to them? you and me. I'm up here doing my part. All of us, the whole church of Jesus Christ, wherever they are, wherever we are in the world, are God's prophets. Remember, a prophet's just simply this, somebody who hears God's word and delivers it to men. You're hearing God's word. Children, you're hearing God's word today. And it becomes now your job to take God's word to others. And remember Samuel, you can start doing that even as a young child. I want to leave us with one thought. I want to return to what Jesus said about John. Remember Jesus said John is the greatest. He's the greatest prophet who has yet arisen. Luke 7, 28. I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. But Jesus goes on and he says this, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God 
is greater than he. What does that mean? It means that if you belong to Jesus today, on this side of his coming and his work, finished work, and his ascension into heaven, you're superior to John the Baptist. What? How so? Well, in this way. Because you know more about Jesus than John ever did. A lot more. And kids, you might be thinking, well, I don't know that much about Jesus. Surely it's not my job to tell anybody about him. I'm telling you, kids, take what you know and compare it to what John wished he could know. And it's a lot more. Now, John did a lot of good for God. And if you take what you have, the knowledge you have of God, and you start putting it to work in the lives of your friends, the lives of your brothers and sisters, the lives of your parents, you can do a lot of good for the Lord Jesus Christ as a prophet. The, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And you, according to Jesus himself, are a greater prophet than John if you belong to him. Because remember, John died before Jesus finished his ministry. He was beheaded. He didn't get to see the end of it. He didn't live to see Jesus hanging on a cross and crying out and praying. He didn't get to see Jesus rising from the dead. He didn't know about that. He didn't see Jesus ascend into heaven. He didn't experience with the disciples the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He didn't hear about the mission to the world. A lot of things that John didn't hear about and didn't know that you know, that I know. What are we doing with it? Are we going to keep what we know to ourselves? That would not be faithful. That would not honor the Lord Jesus who died for us. That would not do this world any good. We need to have faith. And children, we need you to have faith to start testifying to Jesus Christ and his goodness and his work. And sometimes in order to get there, you're going to have to confront people's sin. That's usually the way this these kinds of conversations start as you run into somebody's sin or you have to point out somebody's sin to help them understand that they have a need. And you might get hated and despised and made fun of and run out of town. You might lose some friends. But you might and you will give them enough time, enough attempts, enough of God's spirit and help. You will win brothers and sisters for God that will last for eternity. I hope you'll put to work what you know. And I hope you'll pray that I will too and that your parents will. I'm going to pray for you now. Heavenly Father, I ask, Lord, that you would bless the children of this church with a mighty spirit 
to testify to Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that they would be filled with thoughts about him, that they would carry faith in him and belief in him and the knowledge of him into every place that they go and into every friendship that they have and enjoy and that they would be generous and faithful in testifying to Jesus. And I pray that you would bless what they do for you to bear good fruit for your kingdom and that you would bring other people to know you because of their work. And would, Lord, we pray this for ourselves as adults as well. Would you help us, Father, to be faithful for, with the knowledge that we have that you have given us to love the people around us, to speak the truth, and to proclaim to them a Savior. Thank you for the prophets who have gone before us and for their example and their words. Help us to honor them by our own words and actions. In Jesus' name, amen.